you have a Bible with you this morning, if you would turn to Matthew, the 13th chapter, um, I would invite you to turn uh, there with me. Matthew 13, uh, verses 24 through 30, and then it moves the text this morning to 36 through 43. If you're able and with us this morning, if you would stand with me in honor of the Lord's word, um, Matthew 13, 24. Jesus told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like someone who planted good seed in his field. While people were sleeping, an enemy came and planted weeds among the wheat and went away. When the stalks sprouted and bore grain, then the weeds also appeared. The servants of the landowner came and said to him, Master, didn't you plant good seed in your field? Then how is it that it has weeds? An enemy has done this, he answered. The servants said to him, do you want us to go and gather them? But the landowner said, no, because if you gather the weeds, you'll pull up the wheat along with them. Let both grow side by side until the harvest. And at harvest time, I'll say to the harvesters, first gather the weeds and tie them together in bundles to be burned, but bring the wheat into my barn. Now verse 36, Jesus left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. Jesus replied, the one who planted the good seed is the human one. The field is the world, and the good seeds are the followers of the kingdom, but the weeds are the followers of the evil one. The enemy who planted them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the present age. The harvesters are the angels. Just as people gather weeds and burn them in the fire, so it will be at the end of the present age. The human one will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that cause people to fall away and all, who, all people who sin. He will throw them into a burning furnace. People there will be weeping and grinding their teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Those who have ears should hear. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So as we think about this parable today, if you were with us last week, uh, we listened to a wonderful parable, also agrarian. Uh, the kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed. Um, I thought it was a pretty good sermon last week, and many of you sent me very kind emails this week saying, oh, that was such a good sermon. I love to think about the farmer, who the indiscriminate farmer who just keeps sowing seed on hard ground and on rocky soil and on shallow soil and on good soil. It is good. It's such a good parable about the graciousness of God, the indiscriminate graciousness of God. We should have really liked last week's sermon. I liked it a lot. Not so much this week. If I do this well, and if we hear this parable well today, this is in some ways uh, the follow-up parable, but but we should read this parable as though we are so thankful for the indiscriminate grace of God, but we're a little disappointed about how this is going. Um, for it's a parable about, okay, everything's growing now, but, but the workers of the field begin to recognize that there is a problem. And the problem is that there's weeds growing along with the wheat. And so, First, first of all, the, the Greek word today for weed um, is actually a, a kind of grass that grows in the Middle East that grows with wheat, and it's very hard until late in harvest to be able to discriminate between the two. So it's a, a problematic kind of weed that for a while looks like it's part of the good grass, but then turns out to not be. But the workers come to the master of the field and say, what's the deal? We thought you sowed good seed. Didn't you sow good seed? I mean, what's the deal? 
And he says, oh, no, I, I sowed good seed, but an enemy came along and sowed seeds of weeds in, midst, in the midst of it. If you want to focus on one verse today, and if you want to underline one, it's, it's, it's the 28th verse where they ask us, oh, great, so what do you want us to do? Should we go pull up the weeds? Dun, da, da, ba, ba, ba. Let's go pull up all the weeds. Is that what you want us to do? So in some ways, how I want you to hear this parable today is in a kind of disappointment that it hasn't turned out to be all wheat. And the growth of this field, the growth of this kingdom hasn't turned out to be all that we expected it to be. And so we asked the Lord, what do you want us to do about that? Want us to go pull up all the bad parts? In order to get at this today, I, I want to uh, go on a little journey with you, and I may lose a few of you here in the beginning and hopefully bring you back at the end. But, but I, if you hang with me, I think it will make sense. I think it's important for us today to hear this parable as what I'll call a kind of via media, which is a Latin term meaning a middle way. The term actually comes from our theological history. Um, the church in Nazarene uh, was birthed 100 or so years ago largely out of the Methodist tradition. We, we are a mutt. We had people from everywhere. But we were mostly Methodists who felt like we needed to kind of re-energize Wesley's emphasis on holiness. But our tradition is then is largely connected to the Methodist tradition and to John Wesley. It's why we'll talk about, we talk about him a lot here. But Wesley was an Anglican. Now, the Anglican church came about almost 500 years ago. In 1517, that was the year that Martin Luther went to the church at Wittenberg and posted on the door the 95 Theses, which started the Reformation, the great divide between the Catholic Church and the Protestant Church in the West. 17 years later, um, various nations, and this is really important to remember historically, the divide between Catholicism and Protestantism really didn't so much divide individuals to say, well, now, what do I want to be? Do I want to be Catholic or do I want to be Protestant? For the most part, it was nations who made that decision. So some nations became Lutheran or Protestant, um, especially some of the Scandinavian countries. I, this is why I love to say when you go to Minnesota today, there's Lutherans everywhere um, eating hush puppies and talking like this because, there's, uh, because the Scandinavian countries became Lutheran. Germany became a, a Protestant nation, Switzerland, others. But England was up in the north, kind of hanging out, chilling by itself. And Henry VIII decided, all right, we get this chance to make up our own church. So, cheerio, theologians, go, make up a church, right? So, go, <laughs> figure it out. Well, the strange thing about Anglicanism is that they liked a lot of things about Protestantism, in particular things like the authority of Scripture and justification by faith alone, but there was a lot of stuff about Protestantism they didn't really like. So they didn't really want to be fully Protestant. And there were some, a lot of things about Catholicism that with the Protestants they wanted to protest against and not have, but there were a lot of things about Catholicism they didn't want to lose. That's why if you go to an Anglican church, the theology feels very Protestant, but the practices feel very Catholic. And the idea was as they formed Anglicanism, they would be a via media. They would be a middle road between Protestant and Protestantism and Catholicism. Right, have I lost you yet? You with me? And I would argue that's why many of us in that sort of theological ancestry find ourselves in a via media between a number of different issues. 
for example, we are a people who, who believe deeply in both sovereignty but also human freedom. So there are some traditions who believe so much in God's sovereignty that everything that happens is willed by God as though we are acting out a divine script in which we have no choice, including who gets saved and who doesn't. Now, if you, you don't have to be around very long before you know we go, yeah, at that kind of theology. But at the same time, we're not, a, we're not deists who think that God has then just kind of wound it up, given us free choice, and then taken God's hands off of it. So we try to walk this kind of via media between a God who is at work in the world, but a God who has given us freedom to respond to God's work in the world, but a God who has not given up on God's creation will bring it to its glorious conclusion. Are you with me? Amen. That was good. Put that on a t-shirt. We walk a via media between, and this gets us in trouble sometimes, between what I would call kind of um, liberalism and fundamentalism. So we are a people who believe deeply in the authority of the Scripture. But we're not a people who are suspicious of scholarly ways of trying to read the Scripture. And so we're not a people who think that God, that what it means for the Scripture to be inspired is that God dictated to the writers in ways that overcame their own cultural history and education and moments. Are you with me? And so there are some who would say, this is the word of God because God dictated every word, every jot and tittle in the scripture is therefore breathed and spoken by God. We would be a people who would say, oh no, we believe deeply in the authority of the word, but we're also recognizing this is both a work of human work and the Spirit's guidance. Are you with me? That was really good too. Put that on a t-shirt too. Now, here's the problem if you're from that tradition. Usually, it just means you get shot at from both directions. Or you get, a, you get accused of being a kind of person in the mushy middle. And I want to say to you today, as I promise we're getting to the text, that trying to find a via media in certain moments is not actually mushiness or a lack of conviction, but actually a very deep challenge. So this is my last really deep thought. My specialty academically is in virtue ethics. And as I've said to you before, virtue is very difficult to find and to practice because virtue is almost always the middle between two extremes. This is called the golden mean. So for example, courage is somewhere in between timidity that runs away, runs away, and foolhardiness that takes on every battle. Courage is somehow in the middle. Generosity is not giving away everything you have. Generosity is the median between what's called prodigality, just giving away all of your resources without even considering what money is worth, and stinginess that holds onto and identifies oneself with what one has. Did you find that? Now, here's the crazy thing. Those two extremes are easy to find. It is the, it is the virtue that is hard to find and to practice. Now, here's why this relates to this parable. I'm concerned this morning as we look at this parable that as happened a couple of weeks ago, when we first look at the cross, sometimes, when, as I said, when we preach the cross, what some people hear is the cross invites us to let evil have its day and we just love and take it. And I said to you a couple of weeks ago in what I thought was a really good sermon, um, 
that that is not what the cross does at all. The cross invites us to stand up against and call out all forms of evil without becoming a reflection of that evil. So what I want to say today is we're going to get to Matthew 13, but in some ways Matthew 13 has to be balanced with Matthew 18 or we will somehow be so disappointed that God is just letting everything happen and he'll just work it out in the end. I think most of us, though, are really good Matthew 18 Christians. And if you don't know what Matthew 18 says, let me remind you. So Matthew 18 is that text where Jesus invites children to come to him. He says, come unto me. You know, anyone who doesn't come like a little child, you know, is not worthy of me, cannot come to me. But here's the deal. Anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble, it's like fire is shooting out of Jesus' eyes at this point. Anybody who causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for them to have a millstone tied around their neck and be thrown into the deepest ocean. Just, right? Do not hurt these little ones. In Matthew 18 is that great kind of confrontation text. That's usually where we, what we reference. Or when there's issues in the body of Christ, what do we do? Well, we go to the person who's causing the issues and we have a meeting with them. And if that doesn't work, we go get two friends and we come back. And if that doesn't work, we yell at them and kick them out. We call them out and we say, get out, right? That's Matthew 18, taking seriously the brokenness and sinfulness in our midst that often needs to be called out. Are you with me? And I think what balances then Matthew 18 for us is then Matthew 13. That we come in this disappointment that says, the kingdom of God is here, but it sure is weedy. It sure is messy. And it seems like it's hard to distinguish sometimes the good parts from the bad parts. And so what do you want us to do, Lord? You want us to go pull out the weeds? <laughs> I have a couple in mind already. Do you want us to go pull out the weeds? And Jesus' advice is no. Leave them. Leave them. And so for just a few minutes this morning, let me talk about two parts of the text. And I, I'm going to confess and be a little bit vulnerable with you this morning there's two parts of the text that I have to reference today that I don't talk about very much. Now, here's my excuse. My reason, the reason I don't talk about them very much is because I'm a child of the 80s. And what that means is this. If you're a child of the 80s, you know, the 80s had the world's best music and fashion and NBA basketball. Um, but it wasn't our best, in my opinion, it wasn't our best theological moment, in, especially in North America. So a lot of what I feel like I was raised on in the 80s, especially in kind of youth moments and youth gatherings, was I, was, I grew up really scared of the devil. And I, we would read novels about satanic forces and powers, and, and they scared the daylights out of me. And, and oftentimes, like, we would get together as a youth group, and we'd play records backwards so we could hear Satan's voice on it, you know, like... Like we, just, we were really obsessed with those things. And we talked a lot about hell. 
And so almost every camp I remember to going as, to as a kid, usually on Thursday night, if we hadn't gotten you to the altar yet, we showed a movie that somehow emphasized hell. And it got us to the altar, right? So, so having been shaped by that, I think there's a generation of which I'm a part that has then kind of pushed back against that to say, man, we are so obsessed with the devil and the demonic that we've lost the sense of personal responsibility in this. And so we say, the devil made me do it, or we just get all these, we get spiritualized, but we don't actually get about around to doing real justice in the world. And I think my generation then, because we were so shaped by a kind of fear of hell, has then had a tendency to then emphasize strongly God's love and God's mercy and God's grace. And not want to talk so much about judgment. Are you with me? So today I have to talk about those two things because they show up in the text. So Jesus says, well, the bad seed's there because the devil came along and has sown it. And is conspiring against the kingdom of God in a unique kind of way. Like an enemy who hopes their neighbor goes broke so that they can buy up their field. He's sown this bad seed into the good field so that it kind of chokes everything out and breaks everything down. And I want to say this morning that, that I think it is really important for us to recognize the reality of evil in the world. And the reality of not just our individual sins, but the way those sins become collective. And the way that principalities and powers then become forces of evil that lure people into various ways of living and acting. And that takes on personified forms that I don't have any problem then saying that the devil is at work trying to undo the work of God in the world. Now, I want to be careful because I, I do think at times in our history, we've said more than the Scripture says about the devil and gives the devil more credit than even Jesus is willing to give him. But here's why I think this is so important, so hang with me. Here's why I think this is so important. Because a people who stop believing in the devil begin to believe that their enemies are the devil. Wow. Oh, let me say that again because you got to get this one down. People who stop believing in the devil begin to believe that their enemies are the devil. And it is important for us in this mission that we not begin to demonize one another. So I was thinking this week, I, I've been on staff at eight different churches in, in associate ministry, and this is my third senior pastorate. And in each of those situations, um, people have come and gone. Um, it's just a reality of pastoral ministry. Um, I think for the most part, I'm still in the positive column. Most More people have come than left. Um, but I've just kind of gotten used to it, and, and I realize that some people leave a church or a ministry for various reasons. I'll just go ahead and expose a few in my own life. Um, you see, I think that I tend, I'm trying to preach the politics of the kingdom, but sometimes people hear that as I'm too conservative for them, or I'm too, and the worst word you can use in our kind of church is liberal, but I'm too liberal for them. And I think I'm doing kingdom, but they think I'm doing something else, right? And, and so they leave. I think I'm a biblical preacher. Thanks, honey. Uh, 
I think I'm a biblical preacher. I will make you a promise. I will never stand in this pulpit without doing significant work on the text and believing that I have a message of good news to share from the text. However, I've had people in every church I've been a pastor of leave because for them, what biblical preaching means is actually going verse by verse and explaining to you what each verse means. Now, I don't, I don't think that's a bad way of preaching, but my preferred way is to understand the text and then invite you into it to try to see your life through it. That's why I use glasses as a metaphor so often. And so people will leave because I'm not, in their mind, at least a biblical preacher. It always hurts when I get that, but... But nevertheless, I'm really committed, you know this, for us to be intergenerational. But that is really hard. It's like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, right? It's too hot, too cold, just right. And so people leave a church because we're too old or too young. I think it's important for a church to reach out and evangelize. Obviously, that's the mission God has given us. But it's also the mission to care for the saints, to shepherd the flock. And I always lose people who think you care too much about those people and not us, Pastor. Or you don't care enough about them. Forget us. Go get them, right? And some folks leave just because I'm weird, (laughs) right? We all bring strengths and weaknesses into leadership positions, and we all bring our personality quirks and yeah, you know, that happens. But I can, can I tell you, uh, the temptation for me across ministry has been, it has been then to, to demonize those who've left. Or one of the strange things about ministry is you enter into a place that's not really yours, and it's not actually anybody who's led it before. It's yours. as God's. And so the people that I have followed have always had strengths and weaknesses. Some who had certain visions for ministry that I think are okay, but they're not really mine. And I've had people who followed me who are really different than me. And our our tendency is then to demonize those others. And to say, they are the weeds. And the truth is, there is an enemy sowing weeds in, in the midst of the kingdom. And the plot of the, of the devil is not so much that the weeds would choke out the good soil, for here's the thing, the gates of hell cannot stand up against the kingdom of God. There's no fear that the wheat will die. Not in this text. The fear is that we'll go out trying to purge the field and end up pulling the whole thing out. Amen. And so we need to be careful. It's not that there won't be moments where we need to meet with somebody one-on-one, Matthew 18, or bring a couple of people and say, this still hasn't changed. Or then get the whole church together and say, change! Change! But it's balanced with Matthew 13 that invites us to be careful who we call the devil. It's a text about judgment. If we had time today, pull out a whiteboard, show all the ways that this text is rooted in the language of Daniel, even language of the human one or son of man. 
about the end of an age coming and all of the new creation coming in its fullness. Even I would argue the language of furnace harkens back to our children's church days of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Like the, the, we're going to throw things in the furnace. We're going to get rid of all of the evil, all, all the chaff, all of the things that are not of God. All of that will be burned away. And the Son of Man will be Lord of all. And then language the revelator picks up and everything will reflect the glory and the light because there will be nothing that hinders the, glo- the glory of God in all creation. Oh, it's so beautiful, right? But here's the thing. It invites us to leave that judgment to God. That's frustrating. Back to verse 28. I really think God should involve me in his work of judgment. You want me to go pull out weeds? I got my gloves on. Ready to go. I got a really big garden trash bag ready to go. We're going to need all of it. Let's go weed. And we're invited to hold judgment back with God. Back to history for just a moment. Um, we, who are kind of quasi-Protestants or Protestants, we can rehearse a whole list of people that we think of as saints now, many of whom are burnt at the stake or killed during uh, the Reformation by, by Catholics. Now, when we tell that history, we conveniently fail to mention all of the Catholics that Protestants killed. And in particular, all of the thousands, in fact, we drowned more Anabaptists, that was the point, it was kind of a joke to drown Anabaptists, but we drowned more Anabaptists during that period than the whole kind of early church suffered persecution. Now, here's why that's important. Out of that, I would argue, comes this cultural moment that then rejects all faith and moves towards atheism. And it's a move that still has, has captured our culture. But it's essentially the culture saying to the church, why would we want to be part of anything that kills each other? It would be better for us to have no faith. Now, it turns out that no faith also leads to violence, but that's another sermon. But I do think that there are still hundreds if not thousands of people in our world today who look at the church and are demonizing of each other and says, if that's good news, no news is better than that news. And so finally, the parable invites us to learn patience. Um, I've mentioned to you, I love Alan Kreider's little book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, where he argues the thing the early church talked about most was patience. Patience with God's redemption. Because when we get impatient, we try to control it, and that turns into a mess. My dad used to like to say, when we don't evangelize, we cannibalize. And so if I could close this morning with just two or three thoughts out of this text. I would invite some of, some of you, and, and maybe it's some of you online or somebody who, hopefully who will stumble across this message later in the week. I would invite us to be on our guard against idealism with regards to the church and the world. 
it breaks my heart these days, especially having served so long now with, with college students, to see young people, but there's a lot of people in my generation too um, who will get online or proclaim they're, they're leaving the church because they're so disappointed in what they've experienced in the church. Right? They've been hurt and they've been damaged and they've been, and I want to say, we are, I am so sorry. But there's a part of me that also wants to say, what did you expect? Like, like you, you did not come, you did not come to a department store. You came to a family. When you don't get what you expect at a department store, you, you write an ugly Yelp review and you don't shop there again. I would like to write some Yelp reviews about my children. And they would like to write some about me. For family hasn't always been what I hoped and thought it would be. Although sometimes it's been more than I ever expected. And the parable invites us to recognize the kingdom of God is breaking out, but it is not ideal. It is still a place filled with weeds and challenges and times when we are hurt and damaged by others who are so weedy and times when we have been weeds in the lives of others. And so we ask forgiveness and we apologize and we move forward, not in idealism, but in hope that the God who called us is greater than our sin. And we learn to practice discernment as a kind of virtuous golden mean between, this is not a text that invites us to apathy, but is a, it is also a text that warns us against harsh judgmentalism. I kind of like the rule of Gamaliel in Acts 5. There are moments where we have to say, I, I'm struggling with this, and I don't know if it's of God or not. But how about this? If it's of God, nothing will be able to stand in its way. But if it's not, God will take care of it. We in the church that is so divided denominationally, with some of our brothers and sisters, we have strong differences. But how much better would it be if we were able to say, I, I'm not sure that they haven't lost their minds, but I, I, I'm, I don't question their heart. And so why don't we live at peace with each other? And if it's of God, may God bless it. And if it's not, may God reveal that. And lastly, if I have a fear for this moment, it's that oftentimes when we feel frustration, so, so in this text, I, I think what Jesus is really doing is he's talking to a group of people, and you should never forget this. He himself and the group that he's talking to, almost all of them will be killed in moments of purification. Jesus and a handful of his disciples were put to death because the people of God thought that the people of God were being contaminated by them and thought it would be better to crucify them, kill them, than it would be to risk the contamination that they were bringing to God's people. The others were killed as a purification of the nation. 
Because Rome had seen itself as the one who brought peace. And so the one thing you can't be is, is unpatriotic with regards to Rome. And so they were put to death as a way of purifying the nation and making sure everybody stayed unified. Are you with me? Now here's the cool thing. What if the tables got turned and you were no, no longer the chaste, but you were the chaser? People who've been frustrated so long now have the chance to no longer be the ones who are being pulled out, but now get to do the pulling out. How great is that? And Jesus says, no. Be patient. If, again, if I have a fear right now, it's that we're so frustrated. And if you're not, what are you, what are you thinking about? Are you not paying attention to anything? Are you not frustrated? I am so, I've never been this frustrated in my life. I'm tired, cranky, ready for this to be over, and it shows no sign of being over anytime soon. Ah! I have no idea if we're doing the right thing or the wrong thing. It's driving me nuts. I'm about to lose my mind. You know what happens when you feel that way? There are moments where a scapegoat will come along and all that frustration that's pent up, we now get to unload it on somebody. <laughs> we have to scapegoat the other. That's why I think we see sometimes in our culture these days people who are just balls of pent up frustration who unfortunately get videoed losing their mind over something not very important. The fun thing is, then we as a culture get to lose, lose our mind on them. Isn't it fun? God invites us to patience, to trust. I don't know if you saw it this week. Um, Andy Stanley, um, pastor of a huge church in Atlanta, made an announcement this week. I'm not sure he expected it to get internationally big, but... Um, he made an announcement that his, their church would not reopen until at least 2021. And, uh, and, uh, and that was received with warmness by all. <laughs> that was a joke. Um, just If you have a Twitter account, just, just search Andy Stanley today. Oh, there's some who think he's so wise and gentle and kind, and others who think he has bowed down to the idol of liberalism, right? The poor guy, he's just trying to keep his church safe and trying to do the best he can. And, and I, don't, I don't, this is not an announcement that what, that's what we're doing or I think that's the best decision. You can save that email. But I don't doubt Andy's heart. He's just trying to do the best he can in his context as we're trying to do the best we can in ours. But what I loved in his statement was this. We're not giving up our mission. We're just finding different ways to live it. But we've done our best not to make this decision out of fear and frustration. Because the church is God's. And even if this is the wrong decision, we believe God will protect his church. And so this morning, it's been a hard sermon because I haven't known how. Most weeks, I, I, I want you to do something, right? Now, here's the sermon. Now, go do this. Or here's the sermon Come make this decision. 
if I get this text right, here's what I want you to do this week. Nothing. (laughs) Give your frustrations to God. He knows what he's doing. Be careful that we don't demonize the other. Be careful that we don't scapegoat one another. And be careful that in our attempt to weed, we just don't pull the whole thing out altogether. May we learn to trust in the sovereign goodness and grace of the one who owns the field, the one who will defeat the devil's schemes, and the one who will make all things new. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just to take him at his word, just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him God, we come to you today um, with our frustrations. If this were our field, we certainly would do things differently than you do. But you, in your love and mercy, are patient with us, like a farmer patient with the soils. And you are patient even with the kind of mixture of good and bad, light and dark, new creation and old. Sometimes in ways it's hard to discern or even figure out which is which. Our tendency is to want to go and grab the weeds. But you invite us to find the virtue that is patience. To pray prayers of confession and not just prayers of deliverance. You invite us to hope. So have mercy on us. Help us these days where we're frustrated about so many things. May we not inflict that on one another. We pray for your kingdom to come and your will to be done. And we pray that when your kingdom comes that you would find us to be the good wheat and not the tares that are choking out your purposes. So come, breathe your life in us. Um, Make us prisoners of hope. Make us reflections of grace teach us the virtue of your patient love. For we pray in Jesus' name.